Bible, like I said, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke this morning. Uh, I don't know exactly how far we'll get. Um, I'm hoping to get through verse 25. Um, Whenever we start a new book, I usually try to take some time introducing the book to lay out some context for us on what the book is about, where, where we'll be going with it. it. Kind of sets a foundation for the rest of the of the, the time that we spend in it. And I imagine we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for, for at least a few weeks. So we'll see how long it takes to get through it. Um, before we uh, open our study in the Gospel of Luke, I want to pray. And as we continue to pray for the other churches in our community, um, this morning I want to uh, ask you to pray with me as we pray for the Lincoln Park Church of the Nazarenes and um, for Pastor uh, Terry, who is the... Um, lead pastor there at the the Nazarene Church in Lincoln Park. So let's pray. Will you guys bow your head? Lord, we thank you um, for this time together. We're thankful, Lord, that um, we can come, worship you, have communion together, share about the wonderful work that you're doing in our lives, and ultimately, God, pray for one another. So we pray for the ministry of U-Turn for Christ. We pray for for Todd, um, first phase overseer, and the ministry and the work that you've called him to do, we pray, God, that you, he would continue to minister in accordance to your wisdom, in accordance to your strength, not his own. We pray that also for Pastor Jeff and Pastor Chris, Lord, as they um, give up their lives for you and serve you, God, I pray you would bless them, I pray you provide for their needs. And for the men that are in the program now, Lord, we ask that you would restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God, that you would do um, your mighty work of restoration and healing and um, making what is broken whole again. Lord, we want to lift up our time together in the word. I ask that you would bless it. I pray, Father, that you would teach us by your spirit, Lord, that we would have understanding and um, that we would apply the truths that we find in your word to our lives. So, God, soften our hearts, prepare our minds. And lastly, Father, we'd like to pray for Pastor Terry and the rest of the um, believers there at the Nazarene Church in Lincoln Park. We thank you for them, Lord, and we thank you for their, um, their ministry to our community. We ask that you would bless them. We pray, God, that you would provide for their needs. We pray, God, that you would continue to grow that church, that you would bring new believers that you would bring people, God, who do not know you, and that they would hear the good news message and be saved. Lord, we thank you for them as brothers and sisters, and I pray, God, that you would continue to unite us together for your purpose and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start off by reading uh, first 25 verses together, since I think that's what we'll make it to. And so I'll read Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and you can follow along. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. That you may know 
the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And verse 10, the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will receive or many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the disobedient to wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to, to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled at that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. She hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. And Father, again, I ask that these words that we read would find a place in our hearts and in our minds, God, that we would know you more, that we understand your will and purposes for our life. God, that we would see that you had a perfect plan in sending your son Jesus, that you had ordained it from the beginning of time. God, because you knew us, you knew that we were weak and sinful and that we were in need of a savior. So Father, teach us by your spirit, God. Meet us in this place. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, before we jump into the verses, I, I do, I wanna give a quick overview of the book. Um, about this book and about its author. And to begin with, the author of the account of, the, of, of this, uh, this account of, of the life of Jesus um, is believed to have been Luke, even though he by name is not identified anywhere in the gospel account as the author or the writer of the book. Yet, 
most Bible scholars speculate, and it is, it's speculation, but there's, it's, it's um, rooted in, um, in uh, logic anyway, but uh, it, they, they, they speculate that Luke is the author because of these first four verses, which we read already this morning, which addresses um, Theophilus as its recipient. And this is because, as many of you know, the book of Acts, which also begins with an address to Theophilus, saying in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Listen, it says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And in light of that, it's widely believed that uh, by most Bible scholars um, that this book had been written by Luke in light of the fact that he was, first of all, a travel companion of the Apostle Paul and had probably written the book of Acts when um, he was with Paul while he was under Roman arrest. And if you know the history and the life of Paul, you can put that into some kind of contextual time frame as, as it relates to um, the writing of the book of Acts and, and Luke being there by his side. In light of this, it's believed that the quote-unquote former account that Luke refers to at the beginning of the book of Acts that he writes about in Acts chapter 1 is a reference to this gospel account. Remember, it says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so we conclude that the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is this former account. And, 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 and so we can claim that Luke is the author. Now, we don't know much about Luke himself since he is mentioned uh, only three times by name in the entire New Testament. You can look them up and read them for yourself, but I'll point them out to you. The first is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Then in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And then lastly, in the book of Philemon, uh, verse 24. Yet, when we take the, the, what we know from those three verses, we know, first of all, that Luke was a disciple of Jesus. He went with Paul on um, his missionary journeys. And um, that Luke was a physician, Probably a Gentile, um, or, or at the very least, uh, 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 a Hellenistic Jew. Um, and the reason why is because he's included in Paul's writings, um, in, he's included in, um, he's not included, excuse me, in the group of travel companions that are identified by Paul in Colossians chapter 4 as those who were of the circumcision. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul lists those who are with him. He says those who are of the circumcision. And then later on in that chapter, he goes to mention a couple of other guys as if they're not those of who are the circumcision. And Luke is one of the men mentioned in that name. Um, and it would be very interesting if, if he was a Gentile. And it makes Luke unique in that if he is a Gentile or even a Hellenistic Jew, um, he's the only New Testament writer... Who, who was a Gentile, perhaps, if that's the case, the only one. And when we put his gospel account, the gospel of Luke, alongside the book of Acts, what we see is, is that uh, Luke wrote approximately um, 30% of the New Testament, just with these two books, these two accounts alone. Now, when trying to determine a date for when this book was written, it seems um, likely that it was written around 60 A.D., which makes it the third in the order of the writings of the gospel account. You have Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in, in regards to a time frame of when these accounts were written. And this date is based upon the fact that the, books of, the book of Acts, which was written 
after this gospel account, remember Luke said the former account, so we have this account which came first was written, we know it was written before Paul was put to death because in both accounts, Paul still put forth as alive. His death is not mentioned. And we know historically that Paul was put to death and that was in 64 AD. And since the book of Acts ends with Paul still alive, and in a prison in Rome, 60 A.D. is a pretty accurate date. Now, you might think, what is the importance of all that and putting a time frame in it? And it is important because what we're dealing with then is, is within regards to the time frame is, is that the people who were alive and with Jesus Christ while he walked the earth will, would have still been alive at the time when, when Luke wrote this book. And so we, we then can relate to this, this claim that he makes about his contact with eyewitnesses. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, so 60 AD is a pretty accurate account in regards to the time when this gospel account was written. Now, the last thing I want to point out before we get into the, 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 the first verses of Luke's gospel account is the main theme. And I would encourage you to write this down and keep this in a place where you can kind of filter the rest of the book as we go through it, through this main theme. The main theme is important in contextually speaking because when we come to places where we're going, why is this here? Why was this written? We go back to the main theme for, for why Luke writ it, wrote it and then we have a, a greater understanding of what he might be trying to convey to us. And even though each of the four Gospels are similar and contain a historical account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? All the gospel accounts, the good news that account the life of Jesus, they differ from one another. They differ from one another in that each gospel also contains a different core message or a different main theme that reveals to us ultimately a specific attribute of Jesus Christ. Each of the gospels highlight a specific attribute of Jesus Christ. For instance... In the Gospel of John, it's different than the rest in that John's Gospel is the only Gospel account to record the I am statements of Jesus. You guys remember those? The seven I am statements of Jesus, which Jesus spoke about himself. And this is due to the fact that the main message conveyed to us through the Gospel of John is ultimately the divine nature of Jesus, that Jesus was God manifested. And it goes to point out that Jesus, who is God, the Gospel of John does, that Jesus, who is God, came down to the earth in order to save mankind. God came, Emmanuel with us, to save, to save us. In the same way, the Gospel of Matthew differs from the Gospel of John as well as the other Gospels in that Matthew wrote that Gospel to reveal the fact to us, and this is the emphasis, this is the main thing, is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. That's the emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the king, the king of Jews. And because of that, he's the rightful heir to the throne of David. And he is, it says over and over again in there, we're told that he's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And this is why Matthew's Gospel account, if you've ever read it or you can turn there and look now, but it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. That's how the Gospel account um, starts. It starts with this genealogy of Jesus that traces him all the way back to King David, saying he's a descendant of King David. And the key verse in the Gospel of Matthew that centers this on this main theme is in chapter 2, verse 2, which says, 
Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And that main theme is carried throughout the whole gospel. Likewise, in the, mass, in the gospel of Mark, there's a different main theme. And the main theme in the gospel of Mark points us to the fact that Jesus came to be the servant of man. So we have Jesus as the king of the Jews, uh, of the, of the um, line of David. We have, we have Jesus as in regards to the, his divine nature, God uh, manifested in flesh. And um, in regards to the, the gospel of Mark, we see that, that his point, his main focus is to point out the fact that Jesus came to be a servant, that Jesus came to be a servant of man. And when you read the gospel of Mark, this is evident also right away from the very beginning. It's stated, it's noted, it's repeated over and over again as Mark records Jesus um, uh, as, uh, as, uh, by the works ultimately that Mark records Jesus doing. From the very beginning, he, he, he tells us the accounts of Jesus coming to serve mankind. In fact, Mark in, in, in his gospel account uses this Greek word, yothos, which, which translates to servant, that particular Greek word, 42 times in order to describe to us and identify Jesus as the servant, the yothos. And the key verse in the Gospel of Mark that relates to this main theme of Jesus being the servant of mankind is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which says this. It says, Even the man, or excuse me, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, with that in mind, we can come to the Luke Gospel of Luke and we can, we can see and look for what the main theme or the main point is for us as we study through it now. And um, when it comes to the core message of the Gospel of Luke, the main theme is the humanity of Jesus. Over and over again, that's the focus. The fact that Jesus who is fully God, is also fully man. And this is why Luke refers to Jesus as the Son of Man a total of 26 times through this account. It's also a, a reference to um, an Old Testament passage, an Old Testament prophecy, and we'll, we'll go through it. But ultimately, it speaks to the humanity of Jesus Christ. 26 times through the account, Luke makes this noted. And this is also why um, Luke's gospel uh, account at the end of chapter 3, it also gives us a genealogical record. You can look there if you would like. But there's a, there's a genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3, and it's different than the one that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's different as in that it traces Jesus' family tree all the way back to Adam, the first man from which all of us have descended, all of mankind has descended from Jesus as well, as we look at that lineage, that's the point. And the point, these, these points are this point about Jesus being the Son of Man, Jesus being fully human and fully God. It's theologically important for us to, 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 to take note of because the humanity of Jesus serves two significant purposes. And we think, why is this important? Why is Luke communicating to this to us? And, and, and theologically speaking, it serves two significant purposes. And the first is to reveal um, God's desire to know us. The fact that God came as a man reveals his desire to know us and for us to know him and for us to know that our God ultimately knows and understands what we're going through. 
We're told about this in the book of Hebrews. And, and it's just one of the passages like it that speaks of this identity that Christ has with us, that he identifies with us as a result of, of coming in the flesh. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to our faith. Let's hold fast to our hope. Why? He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Everything that we go through, Christ went through. He understands what it's like. He knows. And then we conclude as a result of that in verse 16, the author of Hebrews writes, and he says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. You know, and it's pretty awesome when we even run into this kind of situation in our own lives where we find somebody that's been where we've been, when we find somebody that's gone through what we've gone through, somebody that can relate to the, to the situation or the circumstances of life that we may be going through where we can be encouraged and comforted and mutually strengthened as we go through this life together. And ultimately, we have that in Christ. God who desires to know us desires for us to know him and for us to know that he understands what we're going through because he's gone through it too. Now, the second and the most important theological reason for why God became a, became a man ultimately was for the purpose of saving us, right? That's greater than just knowing us. It's for the purpose of saving us. And this is rooted in the fact that as a result of our sin, which the Bible teaches us is punishable by death, is that we are all lost it tells us, meaning ultimately that we all owe a debt, a debt that we can't pay on our own. And the payment, the Bible says, to reconcile this sin debt is our own life. Yet, what we know is that God desired to save us. And because God desired to save us, he became a man. A man like Adam a man like Adam and all of his descendants. But even though Jesus, as we read in the book of Hebrews, was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, we know that he lived that sinless life. He lived, the Bible says, a righteous life so that his righteousness may be imputed to us, might be imputed to us through the work of the cross and our faith in him. And even though Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, he lived the sinless and righteous life, and ultimately he offered up himself, his humanity. He offered up himself as a, as a substitution sacrifice so that we might receive that new life in him. Therefore, being the only sinless, and as Luke points out, the perfect son of man, Jesus has the power to save all of us who will put our faith in him. And with that, as we go through the book of Luke, we have to see the key verse. And the key verse in the gospel of Luke that illustrates and, and, and relates this to us is Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's our paradigm. That's what we look through as we study through the gospel of Luke. The fact that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has come to seek and to save that 
which was lost. And everything that Luke writes for us from the very beginning to the very end falls underneath that umbrella. Now, as we begin to look at the text, if you guys will look with me in verse 3, Luke makes this statement. You know, I want, I want to keep that context as we go through this. But, but look at where he begins. In verse 3, it says this. He's speaking of himself. He references some other things in verses 1 and 2. We'll talk about it. But in verse 3, he said, it, it, it seemed good to me also, or it also seemed good to me, having, he says, this perfect understanding of all things. And, and that doesn't really mean what, it, what we might think it means for right on the surface. I'll talk about it. Obviously, Luke, Luke doesn't have, he's a human being, and, and, and he can't have a perfect understanding in and of himself. But he's making a statement here, and he said, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of these things in which you were instructed. That's pretty cool because right here we're being told some things. Why did Luke write it? He wanted us to have assurance. He wanted us to have certainty in the things in which we as believers have been instructed. And as we and believers, as believers that we've put our faith in. He wants us to, to, to know without a doubt, to have certainty. And with this in mind, as we start here in verses 3 through 4, and we go through these verses with the time that we have left, I want to start out by pointing out that in verses 3 and 4, where, where Luke writes and says this, um, we can see that Luke's purpose for writing the account is clearly stated, and that we can trust we can trust in the fact that by reading and studying the things that are found in this account that we too, even though it was written to Theophilus, that we too as readers of it, as studiers of it, of partakers of it, that we can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. That's a cool thing, that we can have certainty, be strengthened, encouraged in our own faith and know the certainty of the things in which we as believers have been instructed. And obviously there's many things that we've been instructed in as believers, but there's a, there's a foundational truth that we all stand on, right? And it's that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. And that by believing in him, that we would have life. To know for certain that this is true in our own lives. Now this is an important now, now, it's important to point out a few things from these first four verses, as I want to kind of back up a little bit and look at the first two as well. Um, and the first is where Luke tells us in verse 1 that, that like others who have become before him, right, like the others, he too is going to set, he says in this, in this verse, he's going to set in order a narrative account, he says, of eyewitnesses who testified to the things that have been fulfilled among, or more literally, to the things that we have come to believe in. In other words, Luke tells us that, that, that he, um, he who was writing, I think at this time, when you study out the history behind uh, the people that Luke was writing to, is that he was ultimately writing to a world that was offended by um, the crazy superstitions of all the different religions at the time within the Greek culture. And really, guys, that's not much different than what we see going on now with all the crazy beliefs that people have, right? He's writing to a people who were ultimately offended by all the crazy superstitions of most of the religion, and ultimately what they were longing for is what Christianity has to offer, what we have to offer, and which is different than 
any other religion out there. And it's this simple thing. And, and what Christianity has to offer that Luke begins to start off with is that we have a faith that is founded upon fact. Did you realize that? That we have a faith that is founded upon fact. It's not rooted in superstition. It's not rooted in fables. Christianity is a faith that is rooted in fact. So according to verse 3, Luke says it seemed good to him to do what others had done, which is probably a reference, I think, to Matthew and Mark's Gospels, which had previously been written. Yet Luke tells us that he was going to do it a little bit different. I'm going to do it differently than what others before me have done. In that he was going to write, he says, an orderly account of these events. In other words, Luke wanted to give an additional account really that was more comprehensive than the ones that had come before him. And as a result, Luke's account documents for us the story of Jesus beginning with um, his, the, the proclamation, which we'll read about here next week, uh, which will be made by John the Baptist, who's foretold of here in this chapter. And, 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 and Luke begins with this proclamation by John the Baptist of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And he continues all the way through to the very end of his account to where Jesus is ascending into heaven. So he takes this comprehensive account, starting at the very beginning of these things as they began to unfold historically for us, all the way to the end where Jesus said, hey guys, I'm coming back, but I'm leaving now, where he ascended into heaven. From the very beginning to the very end, a comprehensive account that was his desire. Because of this, the, the gospel of Luke is unique in many ways. Um, it's unique in, 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 because the gospel of Luke is the most complete out of all the four gospels. Um, it's also the most universal gospel, and what I mean by this is that the Gentiles in the gospel of Luke are often put in a very favorable light. Furthermore, um, it's a gospel that is um, most interested in the roles of, of, of women who at that time in society were not looked upon favorably, also children, which were also not looked upon favorably, and even the social outcasts of the time. And we talk about the lepers in here and others that, that um, societally or, or culturally speaking at this time were not viewed very well, but yet Luke accounts them. And, and what it does is it just shows us this, this identification of Christ as God in the flesh coming to be with those whom the rest of the world didn't care much about. It's also a gospel that's, I love this, that's most interested in prayer. We're going to learn a lot about prayer as we go through this gospel. And what I mean by that is that, that it's the gospel that's most interested in prayer because Luke records Jesus praying seven different times. That's unique to his gospel, more unique than, than any of the other gospels for that reason alone. And it is a gospel that puts the, the, the most emphasis ultimately on the Holy Spirit and on the joy that we receive as a result of our, our faith in Christ. Now, I also want to explain what it means here when Luke said, and I already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but in verse 3, if you look there again, I want to explain what, what, what Luke meant when he said or wrote in this account. 
you know, that he had a perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning. And it's a really cool thing what he writes here. We've got to dig a little bit below the surface um, to figure it out. But um, in order to, to get some understanding here, I need to point out to you that the Greek word used here for understanding is para um, akoluthio. And um, that's the Greek word for understanding here. And, and there are many Greek words that will translate to our English word understanding, but this one is different. It's different, and it's an interesting word as it means specifically this. As Luke says that he's gained this understanding. It, it, it says it means to obtain knowledge by attending to one wherever he goes. So what Luke is saying is he's saying, I gained this knowledge by being with other people who were there when these events unfolded. And so by this statement, Luke is revealing to us that this gospel account is the result of his time spent at the side of those who, according to verse 2, if you look there, were eyewitnesses of these things. And again, this points out the fact that our Christian faith is rooted in fact. Eyewitnesses. And this is an important statement for us to take notice of because it's a claim to the accuracy of the events that are recorded in this gospel. Luke is saying they're accurate, they took place because I personally spoke to the eyewitnesses who saw these things, who witnessed these things, who experienced these things. In other words, it's not a book of secondhand information. It's not a book of thirdhand information. And Luke was assuring, ultimately, this person that he was writing to, Theophilus, of this. Theophilus, this is, this is the real deal. I found these people and I spoke to them. And this is what they saw. This is what they witnessed. This is what they experienced. Now, when we mention Theophilus, I do want to point out that there's much speculation, much speculation about who Theophilus was. He's mentioned twice in Scripture. Here, in the Gospel of Luke, and then again in the book of Acts, by name. And Luke refers to him here as the most excellent Theophilus, right? And that's really a title that's given there, the most excellent Theophilus. And because of this, there are some who believe that Theophilus was a high-ranking Roman official. Perhaps someone who had put their trust in Jesus and then been commissioned by Luke to research and to record this information. That, that, that Luke was, was doing what he had been hired to do. There are still others who suggest that Luke had been a slave of Theophilus and that he had been sent free by this man named Theophilus and, and, and sent with Paul after he had converted. That too makes some sense um, as far as Luke joining with Paul and traveling with him, that perhaps he was a slave and he had been set free. Um, to do this work, to gain this information, to write these, these books. Yet there are others who believe that Theophilus was not so much a person, um, by, but that this, this name, Theophilus, was really used to describe a group of people to whom Luke desired to establish their faith. Because when you take that word Theophilus and you break it down, you see that it, what that word really means is a lover of God. And, and that's what we are. That's who we are. We're lovers of God. And so as, as Luke writes this account and names Theophilus, we can see that we too as, lover or God, as lovers of God, um, um, that Luke 
all these years later that God through him is looking to establish our faith. But even though we don't know for sure who Theophilus was, we do know that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ultimately, as he states here, has provided an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And as a result of it, this should, it will help us grow in our faith as we read and study through it together. So as we go on here in verse 5, and Luke begins to account these things. He starts by mentioning Herod, the king of Judah. And it says in verse 5, he says, There was, in, in, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest. So we have a, a king, Herod, and we have a priest, one who would be serving, we know, there in the temple in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Zacharias. We're told specifically, again, a detailed account setting in order all these things that, that he just was not an ordinary priest. He was of the division of Abijah. And furthermore, he were, his wife is, a men, uh, is mentioned, or she's accounted as well. And, and we're told specifically that uh, we see her genealogy traces back to one of the daughters of Aaron. And um, her name was Elizabeth. And and. Two statements are told about these, 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 this husband and wife, this priest and his wife. The first is that they were both righteous before God, walking in all of God's commands and in ordinance of the Lord, they were blameless. But, but in addition to that, we're told that they were unable to have children, that Elizabeth was barren, that she could not conceive, and they were both well advanced in their years. And as Luke begins this orally account, what we see as, as we see the mention of Herod, the king of Judah, we see that Luke is identifying really the time for when all of these things began or when all of these things began to take place. And the naming of a king or a ruler was actually a common practice and still is in a lot of ways, historically speaking, when historical writings are made to identify a timeline of events for a historical count. And when you go to the, the Old Testament, we see this over and over and over again where we're told of events and they'll name the king at that time who was ruling and reigning. And in doing so, it sets forth, um, it gives us a time frame for which these things took place. And when Luke referred, uh, uh, referenced Herod here, specifically Herod, the king of Judea, we're being told that these events happened at a specific time, a time that you could look at in history and identify it for what we read and see here. And history teaches us that Herod the Great was appointed, first of all, by Julius Caesar over Judea in 40 BC. And that he reigned over Judea until his death in 4 BC, 36 years, is when, when Herod was on the throne. In light of this, we see how Herod is mentioned for us once again in order to establish a time for when the angel Gabriel specifically had come to Zacharias. And that's important when you understand Old Testament prophecy, especially the Old Testament prophecy that's mentioned in these verses that we already read. And this was very important because in doing so, what Luke is documenting for us is he's ultimately documenting the first time in nearly 400 years that God had spoken to his people. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, the 400 years of silence, a time when God did not reveal any word, any prophecy, anything to his people. 400 years. In fact, the last word that had come from God was through the prophet Malachi in 430 B.C. 
And this word from God concluded in the book of Malachi with a prophecy that told specifically of God's judgment upon the wicked, the redemption of those who would fear his name, and the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which would be preceded, it says in the book of Malachi, by the return of the prophet Elijah. That Elijah would first come before these events unfolded. But after this prophetic word, this last prophetic word was given by God, God was silent. And God was silent until it was time for these things which were prophesied by the prophet Malachi to be fulfilled. So as Luke continues to reveal this long-awaited-for message from God, he tells us that it came to a priest by the name of Zacharias. And Zacharias, as I already mentioned, was a priest of the division of Abijah. And when you study out um, what that means in the Old Testament, you can go to the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And, and when you begin to talk about the divisions of the Levitical priesthood, those who were serving the te- in the temple or, or back in Chronicles at the tabernacle, we know that when David had turned over his kingdom to Solomon, who was going to build the, tab- the temple, right, is that David took the Levitical priests and he divided them into 24 divisions. And each division had a specific place, a specific task that they would do in the service at the tabernacle or in the temple. And in the division of Abijah, when you begin to study this out, you see that it is the eighth of the 24 divisions which um, the political priests had been originally divided into by King David. But historically speaking, you also have to go to the book of Ezra as you consider the divisions that are being mentioned here because in Ezra chapter 2, verses 36 through 39, it tells us that after the Israelites had returned back to the land after their Babylonian captivity... We know that they were dispersed or taken out from the land because of their disobedience to God. They were brought into captivity by the Babylonians that when they returned, only four of the original 24 divisions of priests remain. The rest had dispersed or, or had, been, had not survived. And, and those who remained were then redistributed under the original 24 divisions that David had set forth. And that is important because when we come now to the time frame that we're talking about, what we see is that each of these 24 divisions served in the temple only twice a year. And they only served twice a year for one week at a time. And Zacharias was in Jerusalem at this time, and he was serving in the temple at an appointed time. And all of these things that Luke, or Luke is, 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 is identifying for us, it may seem methodical or tedious, but what we keep going back to is, is that God's operating in accordance to a plan, right? These aren't random things that were happening. God had spoken a message 400 years previously. He was now bringing that to pass, and it was all in accordance to an appointed time, including the fact that that, that um, Zacharias, who was of this division of Abijah, was there at this time because it had been appointed for him. Not only had it been appointed for him, we see that there was this lot that had been casted that gave him the right, the ability, the privilege to be able to go into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, and offer up incense. 
This wasn't random. This wasn't coincidence. This wasn't by chance. It was all God working according to a plan that he had set back from the beginning of time. And so Zacharias was in Jerusalem and he was serving in the temple for an appointed time. However, if you look here in verse 9, it tells us that in addition to his normal duties, which he would be doing for that week, as I previously mentioned, that he had been chosen by lot to offer up incense. Now really there was, at this time, the, 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 the daily what would happen is, is there would be four lots that were cast. And, 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 and those four lots that were cast would give certain priests this privilege of being able to serve in the tabernacle when all the other priests would do other duties. And, 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 and so lot, uh, uh, Zacharias was chosen by lot. He was given this privilege to offer up the incense. In this offering of the incense that was offered up, we know that it was offered up in the morning and also in the evening upon the golden altar of incense, what stood toward the veil of separation. We've been talking about this as we've been going through the book of Exodus. And it was offered up as a perpetual offering to God. And this offering was one of the most important parts of the daily worship. In fact, Lots were drawn each day to determine who would have this honor. And this task was something that a priest, a priest at this time was only permitted to do once in their lifetime. If they ever got to do it. And here's the reason why. Because Josephus writes in, in, in regards to the priesthood, and it's estimated that by him that there was some 20,000 priests in Jesus' day who were of this proper lineage of this right division to be able to serve in the temple and the tabernacle of meeting. 20,000. And so for, for, for Zacharias to be chosen at this time in this way was the hand of God. And now it was Zacharias' turn. A once-in-a-lifetime chance. And without a doubt, this would have been very something very special. Something that he had dreamed about. Something that he had looked forward to. Yet when Zacharias, we're told, went into the holy place to offer up the incense, which again is a picture of the prayers of people rising up to God. And here we're told that the people were outside. As Elijah went, as, as Zacharias went in, he was outside. And, and the people were outside and they were praying to God. That when all of this happened, when, when the people were praying outside, that, that an unexpected thing took place for Zacharias. And verse 11 tells us that an angel of God appeared to him. An angel of God at this time, at this moment, at this appointed time, appeared to Zacharias on the right side of the altar. Again, great detail given to these accounts. Why? Because they're facts. They're first-hand accounts. He probably talked to people who knew or heard this and said, yes, the angel appeared, and this is where he appeared, and this is what he said. And he said to him in verse 13, listen, he said, do not be afraid, for your prayer is heard. Now, the fact that an angel had appeared to Zacharias in the tabernacle of meeting would have been incredible just in and of itself. Many people I hear will talk, and they're like, oh, I'd love to see an angel. I'd love to meet an angel. Not me. I don't want to meet no angels. Because every time in Scripture, when you see someone having an encounter with an angel, they either fall down like they're dead, like Daniel, or they're scared and afraid. Angels are pretty incredible beings. And so this in itself would have been a pretty incredible experience. However, 
considering, now take the context of what, Zach, what, what Luke is telling us, considering that it had been 400 years since God had spoken to this people, no revelations, no angels, no prophecies, no word from God, because that was taking place now 400 years later after this time of silence, it made this event a historically awesome thing. And what was God coming to say? What was God coming to do? And the message that the angel brought was, a miraculous, was, was miraculous as, as it told an event that was going to take place that would affect all of mankind for the rest of, uh, for the rest of eternity. He said, for the time had come that had been prophesied about by the prophet Malachi. For God, he said, to send his son of righteousness to redeem those who feared his name. Now, in regards to the angel telling Zacharias that his prayer had been heard, think about that. It's unlikely, when we look at the events that took place afterwards, and when we see that um, the angel talked to him about, you know, now you're going to receive a son, it's unlikely that Zacharias was in this place at this time offering up the incense for the people, the prayers of the people, that he would be in this holy place at this altar of incense, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's unlikely that he would be there praying and asking for a son for himself. Some people would say that he was praying for a son. Your prayer has been answered. You're going to have a son. It's unlikely that's what he was praying about, specifically because the job of the priest when he went into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, his job was to intercede for the people, not to make a request for himself, to intercede for the people. Furthermore, since he and Elizabeth were both well advanced in years, they had probably given up on this prayer of having a child a long time ago. So the more likely thing that Zacharias would have been praying for being, as verse 6 describes him, ultimately as a righteous man before God, walking in all the commands of the Lord, it's likely that he was praying for his nation. It's likely that he was praying for the people of God to see the Redeemer, to see the Christ, send the Messiah. And I believe this was the prayer of Zacharias as I believe this was the prayer that Zacharias was praying, and I believe this was the prayer that God heard at this time when he sent Gabriel and said, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. So when the angel Gabriel in verse 13 said that Zacharias' wife Elizabeth, who was well advanced in years, would bear a son, it was because the son would be proof to him and the sign that the Messiah was actually coming at this time. You're gonna, you, the Messiah is coming according to the prophet Malachi and the proof to you that this is going to happen is that your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son. And this is why the angel Gabriel went on in verses 15 and 17, if you'll see there, to quote from the prophecy given in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And he declared that Zechariah's son who was to be named John, which we will later know will be John the Baptist, would go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. Sadly, guys, and we're going to wrap it up with this, so Debbie, if you and the worship team want to come up, what we read here, and this is what I want to conclude with this morning, what we read here is that Zacharias doubted, didn't he? He didn't believe. 
He doubted this priest of God of the lineage of Abijah in the holy place, offering up the incense, a righteous man he didn't believe when the angel Gabriel told him. And he said in verse 18, he said, how shall I know this? And I think when we read that, we see that Zacharias wanted to believe, don't you? The Messiah is coming. I want to believe that. But how should I know this? He wanted to believe what the angel had spoken to him, but it just seemed too great. Has God ever spoke something to you that just seemed too great? You might even go, God, I know you would do that for someone else, but I don't think you'd do that for me. Seemed too great. Why? Because he, Zacharias, was an old man. He said it himself, right? I'm an old man. And then he went on to talk about his wife. My wife is well advanced in years also. In light of this, we see that Zacharias doubted God. Why? Because he looked at his circumstances first. That's what he was looking at. His eyes were on his circumstances. The fact that he was an old man and that his wife was well advanced in years as well. He looked at his circumstances and what God, rather than, than what God can do. He doubted his circumstances first and, and he looked at what God could do last. And we do that, don't we? Often we know what God has said to us. We expect God to do a great thing, but we put our eyes on our circumstances rather than putting our eyes on God. And in regards to doing things, God doing things in our lives, we might be tempted to think that this is really a logical way of doing it, to look at our circumstances and then look at God to see if what he's told us could actually come to pass. But guys, if God is real, there is nothing logical about putting circumstances before God. If God is real, there's nothing logical about putting our circumstances before God. And Gabriel reminded Zacharias of this. He reminded Zacharias of this when he answered him in verse 19 and simply said this. Here's my interpretation. I'm an angel standing before you. How much more do you need, you know? He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And God sent me to speak to you. I'm sure Gabriel was pretty little astounded. What do you mean? You don't, this is too hard for you to believe. But listen, but because Zacharias did not believe, he paid a price. As he was mute, his speech was taken from him. And he said he would remain this way until these things unfolded. And his unbelief, guys, I want to point out to you, his unbelief did not make God's promises untrue. His unbelief did not make God to take back his promises. It just kept Zechariah from enjoying it. Right? He was told the good news. Glad tidings, he said. That the Messiah is coming after 400 years is the Lord God is sending a Savior. But God bound his tongue, he became mute, and he couldn't tell anybody. He couldn't share that good news. He suffered. And when we do not believe God's promises for our lives, guys, we don't necessarily destroy the promises of God, but we do destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. God wants us to rejoice not only in what he has said he's going to do, but also when he does it. To have hope, to be encouraged. 
to share what God has done and what he is doing and what he promises to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the truth of, of, of your word. Thank you, God, that you've spoken promises to us. Lord, and I know firsthand that the circumstances of our situation can seem too great when we look at them before we look to you. Even when we have all this evidence before us and how you've ordained things and appointed things in our own lives, and yet, God, we doubt. And I'm reminded, Lord, of the man who said, I believe, just help my unbelief, as he cried out to you. And Lord, as we're faced, as we individually face circumstances and situations that seem too great for us, and, and we even in our minds and hearts believe that they're too great for you, I pray, God, that you would cast out those doubts, that you would cast out those fears that we have as a result of that. And Lord, that you would take hold of them and that you would give us the faith, Lord, to believe and trust in you so that we may be filled with that joy so that we may be able to rejoice in what you've said you're gonna do. Lord, I think back about what you told Zacharias and the promises that you made to him and the things that you brought to pass and how that, that, that applies to our lives today as we become recipients of what you said you were gonna do when Jesus came and died on the cross for us. And Lord, as we look at the cross and see and see what you've already done, that you've done the greatest already. God, why would we ever doubt that you wouldn't do all these other things, which seems so much less in comparison to what you've already done? Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.